This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey guys, and welcome to What Was Her Name? the show where I will uncover the stories of domestic abuse survivors. I'm your host, Maya Hooper. Hey guys, so I'm here with my guest, Teresa, today. Um, Teresa, I am really looking forward to hearing your story and for you being able to share it with us. So thank you for coming on today. Thank you for having me. Of course. All right. So I am Teresa Mitchell. I'm 36 years old, and I have been out of my domestic violence um, slash sexual assault um, situation for about 20 years. So it happened when I was a teenager. So we met when I was, I was 15 and um, my boyfriend was 16. So he was a year older than me. And I grew up in a teeny tiny town. Um, I, I hopped back and forth between, um, between the city of Lubbock and this teeny tiny town um, outside of Lubbock. And so I would just depending on what was going on with my life, like I, my mom would either have me in school in Lubbock or in school in ropes. And so our fit, like my family spent a lot of time in ropes. So his family and my family were super enmeshed. Like my brothers were friends with his uncles. And so I'd kind of grown up knowing who he was. Um, but we were at a wedding, ran into each other and just kind of hit it off from there. Um, I ended up moving back to ropes shortly after that wedding. And so we were going to school together and we started dating. And um, one day he was grounded because he was, he was always in trouble. (laughs) It was just kind of, he was the school favorite. Like everybody loved him because he was funny and he just had like a, a way of making you like love, hate him. And so the teachers loved him. The coaches loved him, um, but he was ornery. And so he would do like pranks and get in trouble and he got grounded for something. And his uncle was a grade older than him. So two years older than me, but his uncle was having a party, typical high school party. Um, So I wanted to go to the party with my cousins and my boyfriend did not because he was, he was grounded. So he didn't want me to go. And we got in a huge fight and I was like, you can't control me. Like I can do whatever I want. I'm my own person. And he kind of was, he was manipulating me. And looking back now, this was the first red flag that I should have seen, but he seriously was like, I'm going to hurt myself. If you go to this party, I'm, you know, like I'm going to break up with you and just doing everything he could to try to keep me from going to the party Mm -hmm. simply because he couldn't go. Mm -hmm. 
So I went and at that party, I, um, I ended up being sexually assaulted. So I don't remember much of anything outside of getting to the party, having a drink. And mind you, I was 15. This was the first time I'd ever drank like outside of having a drink here or there with my like family at family get togethers. Um, so I'd never drank socially on my own. And so I remember having one huge, like tall boy, like huge can of whatever. I don't even know what it was. And then after that, I blacked out completely. I don't know if my drink was spiked or if I was just such a lightweight that I blacked out. Um, but I woke up on his uncle's bedroom floor and I couldn't walk. Um, so my cousin, one of my guy cousins was walking by the room and I yelled at him and he came and he picked me up and he carried me to the bathroom. And I was a virgin before this. And so when I wiped, there was blood and I immediately knew something was wrong. Yeah. I didn't remember anything. Um, but I, I knew something was wrong and, um, come to find out it was my ex-boyfriend who I had just very recently broken up with. And, um, he was distraught. He was like, I'm so sorry. I thought you knew what you were doing. Um, like it was, it was very confusing for both of us. Like I had no idea. Like, I don't remember anything at all. And he was, he was always like a nice person. Like he always cared about me. He always made sure that I was okay. Um, he was a friend of the family. So it was a hard thing for both of us. But so that night I, I ended up going home and I just remember sitting in the shower and like letting the water pour over me. And I ended up falling asleep in the shower and I woke up because it was ice cold. And then my boyfriend showed up at the house and he was just yelling at me and like screaming and um, about me going to the party. And so I told him what happened and he started screaming, well, you're just such a whore. You're such a whore. I can't believe you would do that. You're such a whore. And like started throwing things at me in my room and he left and I tried to kill myself that day. Mm. Um, and about two hours later, he showed up and it was his little sister's birthday party. So, and we were expected to be there. We were expected to be helping his mom set up for the party. And so I went and the entire time he would he would like call me names under his breath and just like be super mean to me. He was so mean to me after that, but he didn't break up with me. Um, and that's when the manipulation started was he would, he would try to force me to do things. And up until this point in our relationship, he had been constantly pressuring me to try to to try to get me to have sex with him. And I wouldn't, I wasn't ready. And after the party incident, he really, really like honed in on, on me with the sex. And he was like, well, if you're, um, 
if you're whore enough to give it to some random party, to some guy, random guy at a party, then you should be able to give it to me, your boyfriend. Wow. And yeah, and it just started this manipulation cycle where he would like grab me by the arm and I used to have to wear, like I've never been a t-shirt girl. I've always been like a, a dress up and wear, you know, dresses or like cute little tank tops or whatever. And looking back at my photo albums from that time in my life, I'm wearing t-shirts and like long sleeve shirts all the time. And it was because he'd grab me and like, if I tried to get away from him, he'd like yank me back towards him. And that's really how the like physical assault started was pulling and shoving and like grabbing. And within a few weeks, um, he forced me to have sex with him. And it, that continued throughout our entire relationship. Um, I, yeah, like he would, if I didn't have sex with them, he would just hold me down and force me to, mm-hmm. um, he would, I remember one time we were arguing in, in Lubbock, we had driven to Lubbock and we were, um, we were arguing and he pulled over and we were in my car. So I had him like, get out. I was like, you've got to get out of my car. I'm leaving. Like I'm going back home. And he came around to the driver's side and was talking to me through the window and reached in and slapped me so hard that I couldn't see straight. And I remember thinking like, I am going to die if I stay in this relationship. Like I, I had already convinced myself that the, like that forceful sex was okay. And for a lot of years, I struggled with being able to enjoy sex with people. Um, because I would just, I had this automatic response of dissociating and floating away and not being present for it. And and it also like i he took away my ability to say no like i i really did not think that my body was my own to have a say over after our relationship ended um it was something that really affected me for a long a long time and it took a lot of years until i was until i married my husband and like was I able to say no and do it without feeling bad? Um, and that was the result of like his assaulting the sexual assault throughout our entire relationship. Um, so for our relationship, it was the sexual assault, the physical assault, the verbal assault, just constantly. And I remember after the incident in the parking lot, um, I, I hit him back. I think, I think I slapped him and drove off. And after that, it just escalated. It was just constantly like him pushing me around me trying to run away and get away from him. Um, it was, it was really bad. And I finally decided to leave, um, in April and he had just turned 18 and I was still a minor. So 
I decided to break up with him. I showed up at his grandparents' house because he was he was constantly manipulating me to go where he was so that he could have sex with me. Um, it was always like, you need to come over here or something bad is going to happen. Um, and so, and then I'd get there and it was just so that he could force me to have sex with him. That was always the underlying manipulation. And so I went over there and I knew that I did not want to have sex with him. And I refused to get out of the car. And I was like, you can talk to me out here. I don't know what you want, but you can talk to me outside. I'm not going inside your grandparents' house. They're not home. And I don't want to go in there. Mm -hmm. And he lost it. Like he was so mad at me. And I just said, I can't do this anymore. Like I'm done. I don't want to be with you anymore. And he, that's when he started choking me. And I like, I was blacking out. And I remember thinking like, I'm about to die. I'm going to die in front of his grandparents house if I don't get out from underneath him. And so he was, I was in the driver's side and the door was open and he was leaned into the car. Um, well, he was, no, sorry. He was choking me on the hood of the car. So I got away from him. I got in the car and he reached in to like, to choke me again and I threw the car and drive and drove off <laughs> with him still like hanging on to, to me in the car wow. and I that's like I, that's how I finally got away from him and I got home and my mom my mom said um what did you have to do go grow the pickles because I had lied to her and said that I was going to go to the store and get a pickle and so I'd been gone for like 30, 45 minutes. And the that town that I grew up in is population 300 and something people. So the store was literally 30 seconds from my house. <laughs> so, the, so she knew like something was, you know, off. She knew I'd lied to her. She knew that I'd gone to see my boyfriend. And I turned around to look at her and I hadn't seen my face. I hadn't like, I just, I ran, you know, in the car as fast as I could back home. And I was just trying to get back to safety. And I knew he wouldn't come to my house because my mom didn't like him and I knew he wouldn't come. So that's, I was trying to get back to my house as fast as possible. And when I turned around, she freaked out and she's like, what? is wrong. Like what happened to you? She's like, your neck is swollen and you've got scratches all over it and your eyes are bloodshot. Like she freaked out. And I told her that he had choked me and she, we went to the police, like it was a big deal. And he was already considered an adult. So he had to go to jail there. They arrested him. Yeah. Um, but I think one of the most traumatic parts, like aside, I mean, the entire thing was traumatic, but as a victim, when I went to school, um, I had a restraining order against him. And so we, and I had all the same classes as him. And since he was the class favorite, he was the town favorite, um, they put him in ISS for the first two days and he couldn't participate in football because he'd been arrested. Um, but 
after that, I was the one that had to change all of my classes. Really? I Yeah. I had to switch my schedule all the way. Like I had to get out of all my classes because we couldn't be in the same classroom. I had to eat lunch with the junior high kids because we couldn't be in the cafeteria together. Um, yeah, it w- I was the one that got uprooted hmm. out of all of that. So yeah, it's like yeah. You, you were, you were the victim. And then on top of having to, you know, step out in, I think, courage and bravery and report something like having everything else around you sort of change at the same time. Like that must've been so hard being in high school. I mean, like that's your routine. Those are your friends, like your, you know, at least somewhat sense of normalcy, normalcy at that time. Yeah. Um, it, it was, and I, I was seriously like cast as the bad person in the town. It was really hard for me because at that point he was a senior. And so it was his senior year and he left and I was left there in the town still dealing with the repercussions of our relationship. And like during during our relationship, I ended up getting pregnant and my mom forced me to have an abortion because she saw like she she never saw the abuse and she never suspected it. Mm-hmm. But she knew she didn't like him. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she didn't want me. She was like, you're going to be stuck with him for the rest of your life, even if y'all don't stay together you're going to be stuck with him for the rest of your life. If you have this child is all she kept telling me. But after like, after the abortion, I had this like grief because I had lost a child that I really wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, because it was in my mind, like in my teenager brain, it was my joy from this awful storm that I was living in. Like it was a little bit of something good out of the terror that he had been inflicting in me. Hmm. And I wanted it so bad because I was like, this is, it's going to be my baby. It's something that I can not control, but have some power in when I felt so powerless. Yeah. And Like I had the abortion, very few people knew that I was even pregnant in the town. Um, And then I uh, like, so I had the grief, I had the guilt, I couldn't talk about it with anybody. Like I really had to kind of process it in private and not get it out. And so after we broke up and he left, um, like I started doing drugs. And so not only was I, the girl who got Jerry put in jail, I was also now the town drug addict hmm. whose life was falling apart and was who was never going to amount to anything. Um, but also people didn't like, some people knew about my drug problem, but a lot of people didn't. And this is what is so bizarre with my story is like, 
people knew what was going on, but they were also really blind. And I, I, we, you and I talked about this. I think it's really important for people to, to be on the lookout mm-hmm. for changes in their teenagers' behaviors um, because a lot of people missed the abuse. A lot of people missed the sexual assault that he was inflicting on me every day. They thought it was normal high school sexual behavior, um, but it wasn't. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of people missed my drug use, a lot of people. And they just assumed that I, I don't know what they assumed. I don't know if they just looked at me as like this broken girl who, you know, had a messed up high school relationship and was just not coping well or, or what, but by the time I graduated high school, I was a full blown drug addict. Like I was completely addicted to meth and, and nobody seemed to care is how it felt. Yeah. It sounds like, I mean, just from listening, um, to your stories that thus far, like it really sounds like the amount of like trauma that you've experienced, like at such a young age when like, that's just not the reality that like all high schoolers are having to like face in not really having like that support I feel like that you needed whether it be in the community or um I don't know if it's like so much like I don't know what like the family dynamic was like but um you've went through you went through so much and so like your way of coping obviously was like turning to drugs to numb um undealt with trauma that wasn't being dealt with and so I think it's just like really sad to hear like how um but as well, how common, like, I think that that is. Um, and I think that one thing I was going to say, that's like tapping back for a second is like, even just like within having, um, for parents, like having teenagers and, and like, in being like, um, able to educate those who are teenage girls, like what is actually like, um, consensual sex and what isn't, because I think that it's really normal to, think that because you're dating somebody that you owe them something and you don't think that like rape and assault can happen within a relationship. Um, but like this, this guy was taking obviously advantage of you and he was, I mean, he was assaulting you sexually as well. And so it's like, it's not, not just like, you know, fit physically. And so it's like educating like teenagers from a really young age, because whether or not like we would prefer that they just wait and don't have sex as a teenager, like they're probably gonna. And so like really like being real with teenagers and saying like, okay, like if you're going to have sex, like this is not, this is not sex. Like this is, you know, because I think a lot of times those lines get very blurred when you're really young because you are in secret and you're not telling people what you're doing and then you don't know what you're doing. And then you end up in situations where you're, you know, in an abusive relationship or, you know, X, Y, Z. So. Yeah, for sure. It's, um, I try, I, I have a very open, honest relationship with my daughter and I've always told her like, it does not matter how far down the road you get with anybody. You have the right to say no 
at any point. Like you can be completely naked and decide that this is not what you want. And that's okay. And you don't have to explain. Like that was something that he would always do was like, well, why? You know, I'd say, no, I don't want to. And he'd say, well, why? You should want to. And I tell my daughter, I'm like, no is a complete answer. You do not have to explain yourself. Yep. And I think that's so important for, for moms and, and dads, you know, to, to talk, parents in general need to talk to their kids about accepting no as an answer and being okay with no being an answer. Um, and like, just being able to express your feelings because that was a huge thing. Like growing up in my family, um, you did what you were told and you didn't talk back, right? Like there was, I grew up in a like traditional Hispanic family and that was the general rule was like, you don't talk back and you do what you're told. Mm-hmm. But that then translated into my relationships and I felt like I couldn't talk back and I just had to be agreeable. Wow. Yeah. And so I'm very careful with the way the messaging that I give my daughter, she's 15. So she's, you know, at Dayton age. And, but I have always told her that you need to speak up. If someone is making you uncomfortable, you need to speak up. If you feel unsafe, you need to get out of that situation and ask for help because I was never told those things. And it's easy to expect our teens to just know what they're supposed to do, but they're still children and our kids don't know what we don't teach them. Yeah. And I, yeah. And it's just, it's, it's scary to me that they're, I know I'm like, I'm not the common situation like there, but it is, but it does happen. There are kids out there who are being physically and sexually assaulted and abused by their, their boyfriend or girlfriend. And I think it's really important to talk about it and to, to get it out there and make it known that like, for me, it was simply changing what I wore to cover the bruises. Right. No one, you know, no one thought anything of it. Mm-hmm. So just being really aware of changes in your kids' behaviors and asking questions and making sure that it's a safe, your home is a safe place for them to be honest with you about what's going on. Yeah. 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 I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. And I think it definitely is even educating me. I mean, I have a, I have a little boy and he's only three. So he has some time, but, um, we both have time, but I, I know it like comes quicker than you think. And I think just from the other perspective, having just heard so many situations like where, you know, how do I say this? Like abuse can be a female or a male. Um, the women that I've interviewed thus far 
have all obviously been abused, you know, by their, their partners who are males, but like, just like teaching my son, like from a really young age and instilling and ingraining in him, like, as you know, that's all I really can do is just like morals, but also like to instill in him, just like, I think just the way to treat. So like, I often am thinking like, okay, what are like the practical things like I need to do to instill in like my son from a young age so that he grows up to be like a respectful, like man, you know, and isn't like, I don't know, it just scares me. But anyways, I'm like going on tangents. <laughs> well, no, And I think that that's a really helpful, like that's, that's a good tip for parents is yeah. because I think we don't start talking about this sort of stuff early enough. And it, it, of course, at an age appropriate, you know, in in an age appropriate way, but like when my daughter was two, three years old, I used to tell her like, people shouldn't touch you places that make you uncomfortable. Not even mommy. Like if you don't want me to look down there, I don't have to because she was very like a very private person. And like she probably TMI, but she started wiping her own butt very young (laughs) (laughs) because she didn't want me touching down there. But I, but I told her that's okay. That is your body and no one else has the right to touch it unless you give them permission to. And with it, she had an older half brother and with him, I started taking care of him when he was like three years old and I would do the same like he would throw things at me and I'm like no listen we do not throw things out of anger mm-hmm. you know like you can tell me why you're mad but right. you will not throw things mm-hmm. and so like I if I could give one tip to like parents out there especially moms who have been through this sort of abuse situation is like the, the cycle can stop with you. Mm-hmm. The cycle of being abused or having an, like raising an abuser, um, it, it can stop with you. Mm-hmm. And it, all it takes is like some serious communication with your child about dealing with their emotions um, in a healthy way. And also like respecting their own body and respecting other people's bodies from a very young age. Um, yeah, I my daughter was in a relationship in middle school with a kid. And I told her, I said, he does not respect your boundaries. I see it. He doesn't respect your boundaries. And at this point in life, it's a little too late to like, to teach him. He, you know, he, he's learned his behaviors. You're not going to be the one that's going to change him. So it's time to leave the situation. And I tell her all the time, I'm like, you cannot change anyone. So do not expect that you are going to be able to fix or heal someone because that's not your job. Yeah. And so I think like just helping our kids be aware of that is really important. Yeah. Um, I would agree. And I think even you mentioned earlier, like that 
because of the way that you were raised and sort of the culture of like, um, you do what I say and don't talk back. Um, so you learn to become agreeable, which then translates to being agreeable in situations where you actually should talk back and should speak up. Um, and I think like finding that balance, like with our own like children and something that I instilled pretty early on was like, even, um, for example, like with family members, like I know for me growing up, like my family would be like, um, you know, give so-and-so a hug. Um, and I would, but like, maybe I didn't necessarily want to give so-and-so a hug. And, um, my son, he's very, he doesn't really, he's just not a very like touchy person. Um, he's very like independent. And, um, when we're like, you know, over at family members houses and they're sort of like trying to force him to give them a hug. Um, and I'm very open with him, even though he's so young to be like, you don't need to hug them. Like if you, like, if he says no, like that doesn't mean like be agreeable and listen and do this. But like, if this is his, this is his body and his space. And if he doesn't want to do that, that's okay. Um, and so he's gotten really good, even with me, like sometimes as a mom, like, you know, just like, um, you know, being like cuddly or, you know, he, and he is very independent. So sometimes he'll be like, you know, mom, like, you know, he just wants to sit there and watch TV. And it's like, he'll say like, no. And I'm like, okay, no, like I hear you. And like, you know, like you have, can have your space. Like he needs his space right now. And, um, that's something that is really like good for me to see that, like that's being instilled in him at such a young age where like, it's like, you don't have to be agreeable when it comes to like your body and your boundaries and that there are boundaries and it is okay to say no. But I think sometimes like it's seen as like, Oh, it can be seen as like a way of like disrespecting your parents or disrespecting elders by saying no, because it's to be agreeable and to be like um, cordial with people to just do the norm, which is like to just give someone a hug when you leave. But like, sometimes like he doesn't want to. And I'm like, I'm like, that's okay. Because I want him to know that like, above all, um, his body deserves to be respected. And if he doesn't want to be touched, like that's okay. You know? So, yeah. And by teaching him that you are teaching him that not only does it apply to him, but it applies to other people, you know, because if he respects his own body, he's going to respect other people's bodies. Yeah. Yeah. So good. Yeah. Yeah. So that's so good. Cause it goes the other way as well. Yeah. The way that he treats others because he's going to have that already ingrained within him and his own boundaries. So yeah. So good. Exactly. Yeah. So see, you're, you're on the right path, mama. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> um, I would love for you to go into, if you, if you would like, um, just, um, I don't think you mentioned the part about your dad. Oh yeah. yeah. Um, so my, my dad, my dad passed away when I was eight and apparently like my dad was abusive to my mom before I was born. And then once I was born, he was like, Oh, I need to straighten out my life. And so I never saw the abuse. Um, I've heard stories about it you know, since, since becoming an adult, my mom has told me stories about it, but, um, but my dad died when I was 
eight and he was my superhero. He was like, I loved him. He did everything for me. He was a strict man. Um, like I said, he expected us to listen and do as we were told. Um, when I was really little, it was like, kids are supposed to be seen and not heard. Like you don't go to anybody's house and just like terrorize their place. You don't, you don't play, you don't eat, you don't drink unless you're given permission to. Mm. And so he was very old school. Um, but so when he died, I had this like gaping hole and I like, I know that I was looking for some reassurance. I wanted someone to love me. Um, my mom had, after my dad passed away, she started drinking a lot more and going out a lot more. And so she'd have um, different guys come in and out of the house. And so I, and some of them would be physically abusive to her. She would hit some of them back. Um, so I saw this like unhealthy, unstable relationship. And I had this mentality in my brain that I was not going to be like her. I was not going to have these unhealthy, unstable relationships. Like I wasn't going to be hopping from one relationship to another. And so um, my boyfriend, he was the um, president of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. He was the youth pastor, like not the pastor, but the like assistant youth pastor. He like led the youth group at the Baptist church. So, and he was like on the football team, the quarterback. So on the outside, he looked very stable. He looked very much the opposite of my mom's boyfriends and a lot like what I remembered from my dad. My dad led the choir at the Catholic church. We were always at the church. Like my dad was really trying to instill in us this good Christian, like home life where we prayed and read the Bible and we had dinner every night together as a family. And like, he was instilling these good Christian values in me before he died. So when he died, I was longing for that. And my mom didn't give it to me. She, you know, we didn't have that. And so when I met my boyfriend, he had all those things that I was longing for. And, um, and I just felt like he had filled this hole that I had in my heart of like wanting someone in my life who would help me get closer to God and would help me have this perfect life that I had dreamt of since my dad died. And I really think that like, that was what I held on to every time the abuse happened, every time I would float off into this like make-believe world that I had created where he and I were this perfect family and we had the kids and the house and he was the youth pastor at church and life was perfect because that's what I had seen in my dad and I think I had like it was it was like I had this fantasy world that I would disassociate to and so I wasn't really experiencing the abuse 
because I was living in this fantasy world, if that makes any sense at all. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. Uh, yeah. And so it was just, it was hard for me years later, I realized I hate using the, the term daddy issues, but that's essentially what I had. I was trying to fill in the hole that my dad had left with guys and with sex. And after the assault, after the, the entire ordeal in my, my teen years, like I never felt worthy of that. I felt like that entire experience and my drug use after made me unworthy of ever having that, that life that my dad made me want. Hmm. And I, I spent years in like, not bad relationships, but definitely not great relationships, right? Like they, none of them were abusive, but they weren't great. Um, and it took a lot of work for me to just stop and stop trying to fill the hole in my heart with other men and actually like get some healing and move forward and be whole again. Mm. Um, but yeah, that the death of my dad was just, I think it was, I never dealt with the trauma and the, the grief of losing my dad. And so when Jerry came around and he was like a salve to my like grieving soul that I'd been searching for, for so long. Wow. Yeah. Do you think that, do you think that if your dad had been around and you were raised with a healthy, um, like role model and figure in your life, do you think that you would have probably been in the same situation or do you think that it would have really impacted you? Oh yeah. Like if my dad would have been around, my entire life would have been different. Like I, my dad worked in oil and so we, he made great money. My stepmom was a nurse. She's an RN. So we had like a great life. We wanted for nothing. We had more than enough. Like we had a great life before my dad died. And then my dad died and I went from living a upper middle class lifestyle to moving into my, like moving in with my mom, which she didn't have a college education. She was working as I think a cashier or something at like a grocery store. Um, so it's a very different lifestyle. And her family, my mom's family is very much like back then they were very, they were very poor compared to my dad's family. Um, and it was, it was just this drastic change for me going from living with my dad to then spending all of my time with my mom's family and the love was there. I was never without love. It was just a totally different lifestyle than what I had when I was with my dad. And I think had my dad not died, my mom would not have gone in spiraled like she did. Um, 
she started drinking a lot more after my dad died. And I honestly like do not think she would have spiraled like that. She had a lot of regret after my dad died because she still loved him. And she still wanted to, I don't, I, I don't know that she wanted a relationship with him, but I think there was a lot of healing that she thought they had time to do and it was taken away. So she spiraled after he died. So had my dad stayed alive? No, I would have had two happy homes. They would, you know, it, it wouldn't have been a, a whole home. I because, you know, everybody talks about, oh, I don't want my kids to grow up in a broken family. I believe that it's better to have two whole homes than it is to have one broken family. Um, and so, like, I truly believe if my dad wouldn't have died, he never, never would have tolerated me dating a guy like that he would have seen it coming a mile away and been like absolutely not that kid is not <laughs> allowed anywhere near my daughter and he would have been forceful about it right. I think a lot of the reason our relationship got so far was because my mom was kind of complacent he was still grieving my dad very much um it had been seven years since my dad died at that point and I think she was she was blind to what was going on because she couldn't see past her own grief. Right. And so, yeah, I think, and when she did realize what was going on and she stepped in, I was angry at her. I had a lot of resentment towards my mom because I was like, oh, now you want to be my mom. Now you want to care. Like now I matter. You didn't care what was going on six months ago. After my relationship with this guy, I um, I ended up in, an, in another relationship with one of my best friends from junior high. And my junior and like, well, the end of my junior and basically all of my senior year, I didn't live at home. I lived either at my best friend's house or at my boyfriend's house. And I, I tell my daughter, like, my mom didn't know where I was. My mom didn't keep tabs on me. My mom, like we barely had cell phones back then. That was, you know, the early, I graduated in 03. So <laughs> like we had flip phones, but you didn't really text. And 90% of the time your phone wasn't even charged because it didn't do anything cool. So it wasn't like it was important to keep it charged. You only needed it to check in with your parents every now and then. Right. I'm like, so... I know that like some of me staying with you, there were a lot of times when I should have left and when I wanted to leave, but my mom would be like, oh, you should just break up with him. I don't know why you're dating him, you know, like, and so I'd be like, you know what? I'm just going to stay with him to spite you. I was very much an angry teenager at my mom. I was angry because she had spent so much time not picking me first. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of ways, Jerry picked me first. Like, yes, he was abusive, but he also paid an enormous amount of attention to me. When we were at school, he treated me like a queen. Like 
he did everything for me. We, you know, we did everything together. We had so much fun. It was when we were alone that things went bad. And we were alone a lot because my mom worked from two in the afternoon till 10 o'clock at night. And so there was a lot of time for him to just have his way. And it was like Jekyll and Hyde. Like we were one couple around people. And then we were a totally different couple behind closed doors. Um, And I, I very much only let my family see the good, happy part, but they knew something was off. But I was like, you guys don't care about me. Like, you don't, my brothers didn't live at home. My mom was gone all the time. I'm like, so you have no say in my life. And I think it carried on for so long because I was a resentful teenager. And I was just trying to like spite my mom, I guess, for not being around. Hmm. So it's very complicated. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like it's very like intertwined, um, but provides a lot of insight as well for like, I think why, yeah, like it's interesting to be able to like be out of the situation and to see like how your um, circumstances may have shaped the way that things um, happened. I have done the same thing, sort of just like taking a look at the way I was raised and maybe some of the things or reasons why I stayed for me personally, like stayed in the abusive relationship for so long and like the areas of like lack, whether it be in my own, you know, self-worth and like where that maybe came from. So it's, it's definitely interesting to unpack and just to see how it all connects together. Cause it really does. Um, but I do, you just said something that sparked a thought in me and I, I do think that my, um, my want for a perfect life, like I, I was so opposed to living the life that my mom was living, that I was willing to stay in an abusive relationship to not be like her in the way that I'd seen her hopping from one relationship to another. Whoa. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever realized that before? Or is that kind of today something that came? No, I realized it. um, I just, yeah, I've realized, I realized it when I was, um, let's see, I was probably, so I have a, I have a complicated story. So after my high school boyfriend, I met my daughter's dad and he was an alcoholic and like, wouldn't come home many nights, you know, like I'd have to go find him passed out at someone's house and bring him home. Um, and it was, and then after that, I met my fiance, um, and we started dating when my daughter was seven months old and, but he died six weeks before our wedding and two weeks before my daughter's fourth birthday. But it was when I was dating him that I realized what I just told you. Hmm. I realized that like my daughter's dad and I were not compatible. He, we didn't want the same things. Like 
but I stuck in that relationship again, because I, I was pregnant and I did not want my daughter to see me jumping from relationship to relationship. And so again, I was, I was staying in that not healthy relationship. It wasn't abusive. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't bad. We'd get in normal fights and scream at each other, which isn't healthy. Uh, you know, like my husband and I, now we have good constructive arguments. <laughs> um, her dad and I would, you know, have screaming matches, but we weren't hitting each other. And that was always my reasoning was like, well, he's not hitting me. So there's really no reason for me to leave. But when I met my fiance and we had a healthy relationship and we talked about things, that's when I had the realization of like, oh crap, I was doing the exact same thing with her dad as I did with my high school boyfriend. Mm -hmm. I was sticking around because I didn't want another failed relationship. Right. And um, her dad ended up um, having to go, like he was convicted of something that he didn't do and again another complicated situation I, I could keep you on the phone for hours <laughs> with my life <laughs> but so he ended up getting sentenced to prison and so I was I always say it was God's way of being like you're not doing this again you're mm -hmm. getting out of this situation it, like slapping me around and saying wake up and smell the coffee like stop <laughs> doing this right <laughs> And so, yeah, I met my fiance and, um, he, he opened my eyes like to this world of like what an actual healthy relationship looked like. And I was like, huh, hmm. <laughs> now I see what I've been doing. Like I had been settling for way less than what I was worthy of. Right. Simply because I had this mindset of like, that's what I don't want. Mm -hmm. I will take anything else except that. Yeah. Instead yeah. of saying, this is what I want and I will not accept anything less. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's pretty, that's a pretty big realization. And I think I'm I'm sure that there is going to be like many who are going to listen to that and probably say me too and relate to that. Um, and it's interesting for me, like it has me sort of thinking about my own life and like kind of, I think I can resonate in some ways with that sentence. And so um, it's very insightful. And I think it's going to provide an insight for a lot of people because I think sometimes we think that in order to, not continue the cycles that maybe we were put in, or maybe, I don't know, like, you know, I think for me, it was more so like being raised by like a single mom and sort of seeing like the poverty, I think that I was raised in and not wanting to raise, like feeling like almost like I couldn't like do it on my own because my ex was very wealthy. His family was very wealthy and stuff. And we lived in Europe at the time. And so, um, I was really afraid to like, to end up like her, which was like a single mom, mm -hmm. right. Who was struggling to get by. And so I stayed for the sake of thinking that, you know, I couldn't cultivate that life on my own and that I needed him, um, to, to be able to do that because I was so afraid to end up like my mom. Right. Um, and so 
it's interesting. <laughs> it, it's very interesting for me. I'm like, huh? Like, yeah, got me thinking, but yeah, it's like a, a reality slap in the face of like, crap. Yeah. yeah. My, mom, my mom and I are very close now and she makes fun of me all the time. She's like, say you spent all that time trying not to be like me. And you ended up exactly like me <sighs> until you found your now husband. <laughs> I'm like, whatever, mom. <laughs> <laughs> oh, funny. How crazy. Yeah. Well, I'm really happy to hear that you found somebody who does treat you right and is um I mean, yeah, treating you the way that you deserve to be treated. Yeah, and even I it wasn't like some magic wand was waved and I was magically healed from the hurt and the trauma from my abuse in high school. Um in fact, like So it's been 20 years now and I met my husband, we moved in together and bought a house in 2017 and we had our first big fight, um, the weekend or the, like the first two weeks that we were in this house and I had just gotten everything set up and, um, he yelled, like he, he yelled really loud. I don't even remember what it was. And he like slammed I was in the shower and he slammed the bathroom door and the shelf that I had put up on the wall fell and broke and I had like the like just flashed back to being in the shower the morning after that party where you know where I was sexually assaulted and like and then when I tried to kill myself I I broke a table a glass tabletop thing Mm -hmm. and when that shelf fell I was immediately like teleported back to that moment of like hearing the glass shattering and remembering the water on my skin Mm -hmm. in the shower that morning and I I couldn't get out of the shower I was just paralyzed there and he eventually like came in and he was like are you okay? And I, I just, I lost it. I was like, no, I'm not like, you cannot do that. Like you. And he was like, what happened? So we had to talk about it. And I had to like, tell him he already knew the story, but I had to like rehash it with him and tell him why that was the trigger. And we've since like established how we argue and how we communicate and like, we have like, I have hand signals for when like, Hey, you're raising your voice a little bit too much. Like we need to bring it back down. We're getting way too heated, but it, it still affects me 20 years later. And so it like, it doesn't affect me where I, you know, am in bed for months at a time, like it used to, but it, it is still a part of me. And there are times when I have to like check myself and be like, Hey, that is not happening right now. Like that is not your life today. Like he didn't do that to you. Hmm. It's not his fault, but it is your responsibility to educate him on why you're feeling the way that you are. Right. Yeah. That's good. It's not his fault, but it is your responsibility to educate him on why you are feeling the way that you are, because Mm -hmm. that is what needs to happen. Like you have to educate 
the people around you to, you know, know why you're triggered or where that PTSD is coming from. What are your visions and dreams now and where are you at now? All right. So now I, I help, I help other women deal with the, the unresolved trauma and grief and um, whatever like issues they're having from the past that are kind of crapping on their future. So Mm -hmm. I primarily deal with um, people who are either sober or sober curious, which are just like buzzwords for ready to quit drinking or quit using, um, but don't really know how they're kind of still high functioning uh, because a lot of times, as we see with my story, um, underlying addiction is some past trauma or some unresolved grief or something that we're just not dealing with. And so I really like to work with the sober and sober curious community to uncover the why behind their behaviors and try to help them resolve those underlying issues so that they don't keep popping up and causing like anxiety or like, you know, shame spirals or um, relapses. So that's where I am now. Um, my dreams and visions, I, I have a vision to see, excuse me, sorry, to see 10 million women set free from the chains of their past. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's kind of vague, but because as you saw with my story, like I have been through a lot yeah, and I, I have like, I've gone through some serious grief and I've gone through some, you know, some hard things and I have found freedom and it is amazing. I haven't had alcohol in almost two years. I haven't had drugs in 17 years. Like I, I've survived a lot and I'm constantly told, oh my gosh, you are so happy. Like, how are you so happy all the time? And I want other people to feel that. And I think women, especially, we put ourselves on the back burner and we forget to refuel ourselves and we forget to take care of ourselves. And I want that to stop. I want women to stop putting themselves last um, and realize that we can't show up at our full potential unless we are running with a full tank. Yeah. And so that's like, that's my vision. I I have a vision to see women set free from just this bondage of feeling less than and settling for less. That's amazing. I think it's so cool to hear um, just, yeah, so many survivors um, their visions and their dreams, because like they're all aimed at helping others who've been through it as well. Um, and I think that that's, what's so beautiful because I think it would be really easy. I know that it would be really easy to leave an abusive relationship and to have, you know, had all of sort of this like injustice done and then to not really want to help anybody, but just to remain like bitter. Um, and I think like, at least for me, I mean, 
there was a period of time where like I was quite bitter, but, um, I think as you he- begin to heal, um, and you come out of it, um, you obviously have two choices about what you're going to do with the story that, you know, you have. And, um, so I think it's really beautiful to hear what you've decided to do with your story, um, because you didn't choose that per se, um, but you are able to choose, uh, what you do with that. And so just to hear that you have visions and goals, um, and how they're very like select and very specific. Um, I think that that's incredible because I couldn't agree more that like, um, if you don't have a full tank, you're not really going to be able to drive very far, obviously. Right. Because you're going to run out of gas. And so, um, you know, what does that look like to really take care of yourself, um, and to really, um, I think sort of put the pieces together so that, um, you are a healthy individual and don't end up in an abusive relationship. And even just, you know, the way that you're, um, instilling so much into your daughter, um, because you're doing what, I mean, you weren't necessarily given to the full extent. And so to be able to sort of just, uh, change the, um, dynamic and to be able to be a mom who is present and who is understanding and who is, um, I think instilling these things that you maybe didn't have instilled and wish that someone would have, or your mom would have, obviously our parents do the best that I think they know how most of the time, but I think it's incredible. And it's, yeah, such an honor to just to be able to speak to you. And, um, I think that you have obviously, I think a gifting on your life. Um, I don't know, just like speaking to you. I think that, um, I'm just excited to get connected with you. And I think that within Phoenix, I think you, people would really benefit from even just like hearing your story and getting to know you. So yeah, I'm excited to just kind of continue to get to know you truly. Yeah. I'm so glad we, we got connected. It's been amazing. Yeah. Um, what is one tip that you would say to, um, our listeners? Be vigilant of abuse with your teens. Like that is the number one thing. Like so much of your child's adult life will be shaped by what they experience in their teenage years. Um, Kids, teens who start doing drugs in high school are more likely to become lifelong addicts than people who start drugs or try drugs in their 20s. Um, So I just want parents to be aware of what's going on with their kids Because when kids don't know what to do and how to cope, if they get too bored, they get too overwhelmed, um, they're going to do what everybody else is doing. And honestly, in in our town here in Dallas, kids started doing drugs in seventh grade here. So, yeah. So just be aware, pay attention, be awkward make things uncomfortable. (laughs) Just talk to your kids. Like I embarrass the snot out of my child all the time. 
when I talk to her about sex and drugs, she's like, really, mom? I'm like, yeah, I don't care. I'm going to tell you. (laughs) (laughs) But that is like, our kids are our future. Like they are the future of the planet. Um, And the only way we can like be there for them and nurture them is to pay attention. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. I like that just being awkward sort of, and really being able to have the difficult conversations or the uncomfortable ones. Yeah. Good. Exactly. Yeah. Well, thank you. Um, Thank you for coming on here and sharing your story with us. Um, I'm really grateful that you were just, yeah, so open and vulnerable with us today. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you for allowing me to share. I think it's important for people to hear stories. Yeah. All right, guys. So tune in next week and we will see you then.